0: Last week, you may remember we mentioned Pliny the Elder as the mythological animal's best friend. This morning, while researching something about cheese, we ran into Pliny again. And way, way back, when this show was first getting started, we had to give the nod to Pliny for perpetuating the myth of the Catoblopus, and thereby becoming one of the foundational sources for its inclusion in Dungeons and Dragons. In fact, If you look and listen hard enough, we'd say about one in every four episodes of GM Word of the Week, for one reason or another, makes reference to Pliny the Elder in some fashion. Because Pliny gets everywhere. He's one of those people who, if you go back far enough, gets his fingers into every pie ancient Rome ever had. And also the pies of several other people as well. Chances are, if you're reading up on something from the ancient world, you'll come across Pliny eventually. He's just lurking out there, waiting to pounce on your good information with all his bad. And we mean that with the deepest possible respect for what he actually accomplished. It's just that some of what he accomplished was flat out wrong, and in many cases, a step backward. And it's important because much of what Pliny the Elder had to say was taken up not just by Rome, but by many of the people who came after the Roman Empire and had to clean up the mess it left behind. As you'll see, most of those people just kept on following Pliny's lead, regardless of what road it took them down. And when it came to the pursuit of knowledge and figuring out how the world works after the fall of the Roman Empire, it really was true for a very long time that all roads led to Rome. Or rather, to Gaius Plinius Secundus, Pliny the Elder. This is GM Word of the Week. And I'm Fiddleback. The basic facts are these. Pliny was born in 23 or 24 CE in what is now modern-day Como in northern Italy. Unless, of course, you believe the assertion by 17th-century French monk John Hardwin that Pliny was actually born in Verona. An assertion supported by a fragmentary inscription found in a Veronan field by yet another, earlier monk, which claims to be an elegy for Pliny's parents. Possibly. Maybe. Hardwin was fond of doing the sort of thing we generally enjoy doing here. You know, where we tell people that what they believe and know to be correct from common knowledge is in fact totally wrong. Surprise! The difference being that we rarely go in claiming, with little actual evidence in support of it as Hardwin did, that entire swathes of historical works attributed to ancient writers and artists were, in fact, penned by bored 13th century monks. The whole Verona thing might just be more of this sort of tomfoolery, or it might not. In any case, in the 15th century, it was Como that eventually put up a statue to their native son, Pliny. So, we guess they went. To reiterate, the basic facts are these. Pliny was born in 23 or 24 CE. Period. End of sentence. There is more evidence to support Como as his birthplace than there is to support Verona, though information about who his parents might have been seems to come mostly from that Verona inscription. In any case, we can be fairly certain he had at least a sister named Plinia and certainly a nephew. Beyond that, He had no wife or children of his own. Though he did eventually sort of adopt his nephew, who then took the name Pliny the Younger. The fact that this adoption didn't happen until after Pliny the Elder died is merely a legal formality. and appears to just be how these things were done. We know Pliny was taken to Rome to study. At the time, he received what would be a general education for a typical upper class Roman. Classes in rhetoric, manners, and general knowledge would have been part of this, as well as a study of poetry. We know Pliny went into the army at about 21 years of age and, since his father had been of the equestrian orders, he took up an administrative position. We know he gained command of a cavalry wing and went to the fighting in Germany on the Lower Rhine. And we can be fairly sure of this as, at some point in his early career, he lost the bridle of his horse and centuries later it was recovered from an archaeological dig. We're pretty sure he served five years in Germany before returning to Rome in 51 CE. And while in Germany, he wrote the first of his books, a treatise on throwing spears from horseback. But the book did not survive to the modern day. And we know during this time, he became friends with future Roman Emperor Vespasian, which would, as you might imagine, come in handy later. He might have studied law on his return to Rome, or he might have done it earlier. No one seems entirely certain, but he did definitely get tired of practicing law so instead he turned more seriously to writing, knocking out a biography of his former teacher, which did not survive to the present day. He wrote 20 books worth of history of the German Wars, which was later extensively used by the Roman historian Tacitus for his own work, but that also did not survive. Pliny wrote a further six volumes on rhetoric, and eight books of his Of Doubtful Phraseology series, None Surviving, And if all of that sounds both lengthy and boring to you, it was probably done on purpose so as to not annoy famous Nazi evil Emperor Nero, thereby ensuring Pliny's survival and an income until Nero eventually died. Since that meant Rome would need a new emperor, much fighting ensued until Pliny's old friend Vespasian won the job. Immediately, he appointed Pliny as sort of governor over various provinces and places along the African coast bits of Spain, and Belgium, among others. And it's at about this point in his life that Pliny starts working on the thing that really concerns us. It's a 37-book, 10-volume work called Naturalis Historia. Boy, is it a doozy. Pliny sets out to record not just a BuzzFeed list of 15 amazing facts about famous cheeses he thinks you might be interested in, But instead, a complete catalogue of all knowledge available on every subject ever. The entire natural world. Literally everything. And it is the only known work of his to survive to the modern day. Now, that's a pretty daunting task, recording all the knowledge in the world. And it would be easy to make a mess of it and produce something wholly unusable. But one of the things Pliny gave us in the modern world as part of his natural history was the same thing Aristotle had given the Romans. Pliny just showed us how to put it to good use, and we use it every time we have to play a guessing game to this day. Aristotle looked at the natural world and realized things fell into three broad categories. They were either animals, vegetables, or minerals. Minerals mostly meant stuff that couldn't be clearly sorted as either an animal or a vegetable. A rock was clearly a mineral, a radish was obviously a vegetable, and sheep were definitely animals. By putting things into categories, Aristotle was attempting to make the world easier to understand and learn about. You could clearly know something was an animal by comparing its features with those of things in any of the three categories. If it could grow on its own, it wasn't a mineral. If it could move under its own power, it probably wasn't a plant. Did it eat and excrete? That was a strong case for it being an animal. Further questions would help to refine your answer until you were sure where it belonged. And the entire world, it was thought, could be classified into this system and sorted into neat little conceptual compartments. Each compartment would contain things with similar properties, which meant you could know a lot about a new thing just by seeing what other things it was similar to. In Aristotle's classification system, any given object could only belong in one of the three categories, and that was great. Perfect. Well done. Humanity could now get about the business of really getting to grips with the world and putting it to some good use. Which worked great for many years. As long as you didn't look too closely at several things that would otherwise spoil your neat categorization and blur all the neat little boxes you put things in. For example, the humble fungus. gone. What is your typical fungus, animal, vegetable, or mineral? Here's a hint no, no, and no. But also, yes, yes, and not really. Sure, nowadays most people know a fungus is some weird combination of animal and vegetable. After all, many fungi exhibit some of the properties of both, especially as our definitions of what constitutes members of the plant or animal kingdom improve. But so weird are fungi that they have to be given a kingdom of their very own. It wasn't long before Aristotle's categorization of things wasn't enough. It was getting so out of hand that Swedish naturalist Carolus Linnaeus, whom we've talked about before, had to come along the mid-1700s and sort it all out. Well, sort of. He still kept the Aristotelian broad categories, but he further refined them down into a system of taxonomy and classification that would, as you went further down the list, tell you pretty precisely if you had something that already fit with other things or something that, past a certain point, didn't fit at all. You can see our episode on tigers for more on that. But we digress. Pliny used, as his basis in natural history, Aristotle's three big divisions, and within those divisions takes the reader on a sort of guided tour of the natural world. For example, in Volume 1, Book 2, Pliny begins with astronomy, taking as his first subject, whether the world be finite and whether there be more than one world, passing through why stars are different colors, the origin of winds, the rainbow, and why the sea is salt, before ending astronomy with the dimensions of the earth and something called the harmonical proportions of the universe. He then proceeds in book three to systematically across the known world, country by country, city by city, mountain by mountain, and finally on the personal level, to detail such information as was available. By the end, you have a full picture of whatever there was to know about the entire world, its geography, locations, and the important individuals found therein, according to Pliny. And that's the first thing he contributed to the modern world with natural history, a systematic approach to the presentation of comprehensive knowledge. You'd call something similar today an encyclopedia. But there is a second contribution he made— arguably of even greater importance. Because what it does is enable that thing that Isaac Newton said about standing on the shoulders of giants. You see, other writers might be happy to say things like, butterflies come from caterpillars which come from eggs laid by butterflies. And leave it like that. You'd just be forced to read these ludicrous words and accept them as truth all on their own merits, regardless of what you might think of such insanity. Whereas Pliny might say things like, Dew settles upon the radish leaf in the early days of spring, but when it has been thickened by the action of the sun, it becomes reduced to the size of a grain of millet. From this, a small grub afterwards arises, which, at the end of three days, becomes transformed into a caterpillar. That's right, butterflies come from dew on radishes. But you don't believe him? Seriously? I mean, look, right there, at the bottom of the page, he's got a source and everything. How could you possibly doubt that? He's got a source! And that's the other thing he gave us. Sources, attributions, and citations. It might be that the first guy with a nutso theory about caterpillars and eggs got it from someone else. Possibly even a noted butterflyologist, who really did know what he was talking about. Or maybe the author just made that up himself to fill in a word count or make himself look good. You'd never know who was responsible for that bit of knowledge, because they were never credited. But Pliny credited everyone he could from every book he ever read. He'd spend whole days having books read to him and notations made and noting down not just what was said, but who said it and in what book. In all, he claimed over 2,000 books from 200 authors contributed to the text of natural history, and each of them was duly noted in the books themselves. Eventually, his extracts reached to 160 volumes, for which he was offered 400,000 sesterces by the Legate of Spain. And Pliny refused. And on top of that pile of information, he added his own experiences and those told to him by others. Pliny, like Newton after him, knew how much he owed to those who came before. He even acknowledged that giving credit is important, and that he has to own up to those who were the means of one's own achievements. And that's the important thing about standing on the shoulders of giants. You have to know who those giants are, and why you are standing on them. Pliny gave them credit, so you knew what their authority, and by extension his, was and you could evaluate a particular source and make judgments based on the information given, and thereby carry on from where they had left off. Even so, authority or not, some of natural history is pretty wild. By about the 14th century, some rather extraordinary holes were poked in the information Pliny had written. But stop and think about that for a second. Even though Pliny was writing in the first century, it took 1,400 years or so before his writings really began to be questioned. Up to that point, Pliny the Elder was literally THE authority on... everything. Entire books were made just by pulling particular bits of information out of natural history and republishing them as new titles. A 4th century compilation of 1,100 pharmacological recipes came largely from Pliny's work, bore his name, and was hugely popular. He was extensively quoted and used as a source for centuries. In fact, it seemed to some folks that his method of researching via the books and works of others had a profound negative effect on the progress of science. Instead of relying on personal observation and direct research, people simply referred to the works of others in order to accumulate new knowledge, no matter how suspect the knowledge they were gleaning from those books was. Especially since the book everyone was using the most... Was Pliny's. Because, let's face it, there are some real humdingers in there. It's entirely valid to say that Pliny had a very loose association with the truth. Aside from those things he directly experienced himself, and even those are suspect, Pliny didn't go to the trouble of doing much, if any, research on his own. The modern take on Pliny, as charitably put as it could be, comes from Grundy Steiner of Northwestern University in 1955. He was not an original creative thinker, nor a pioneer of research to be compared either with Aristotle and Theophrastus, or with any of the great moderns. He was, rather, the compiler of a secondary source book. But the real value of Pliny's work isn't in the so called facts it purports to contain, rather, it's in the fact of its survival into the modern day. See, without Naturalis Historia, There are hundreds of works, authors, and assorted other Roman and Greek figures we wouldn't know about at all. They aren't mentioned anywhere else in any other context. Historical events and even day-to-day Roman life would be, by and large, a mystery to us, as Pliny's text is one of the few large works to make it this far. For example, he covers sources of purple dye, which we talked about in our purple episode, the invention of fish and oyster farming, He describes various aspects of beekeeping and horticulture, talks about medicine and the use of various plants, and even describes Roman mining methods. He's better on art than most other subjects, and much of his personal observations and opinions can be found in that volume. Which is good, because his story is just about the only work from the period that still exists and lists not only the works of art, but also the artists who created them, and the Greek and Roman authorities on the subject. A lot of the rest is just silly, though. We know what he has to say about the Cotoblapus, which, we point out yet again, never actually existed as described. And that sort of thing is great if you're building up a book of beasties, for example. For some unspecified reason. But there's lots of other weirdness to work with, too. For instance, the scorpion is extra dangerous in Pliny's book. He says... The southern winds have provided means of flight as well for the scorpion, for as the breeze bears them along, they extend their arms and ply them like so many oars in their flight, which is a harrowing thought. He judges that when it comes to the hardness of various skulls, the skull of the bear is the weakest of all, and that of the parrot is the hardest, which has been independently confirmed ...by at least one of our Discord users who claims that his parrot was very stubborn indeed. But it goes on and on. Chameleons have no internal organs aside from very big lungs. Some oxen have horns that move freely about their heads. Certain ants will chase down and kill people, even if those people are riding camels away very quickly. Elephants are so smart that they will ransom off their tusks if cornered. And in a final, astonishing piece of information... There are only 74 species of fish in all the world. And that's just the stuff about animals. He does this to quite literally everything in the world. Assorted facts and fictions from anyone and everyone. No checks, no verifications, nothing. He just printed whatever sounded good and people bought it. Literally and figuratively. Although strangely, he did draw the line at the Phoenix. They don't exist, he says. There you have it. Unicorns, yes. Phoenix, no. Mark it down. We have one last solid fact about Pliny the Elder, and that is how he died. In August of 79 CE, Pliny had all but finished Naturalis Historia. All it needed was a few revisions here and there and a final going over. By now, Vespasian had appointed him a fleet commander in the Roman Navy. He was stationed in Mycenaeum on the Bay of Naples, and his nephew and sister had come down for a visit. On the morning of the 24th, Pliny the Elder had a bath and some sun, and was settling in when his sister pointed off into the distance at a remarkable umbrella-shaped cloud. Curious to see what it was all about, he boarded ship and prepared to sail towards it. Just then a messenger ran up with a plea for help from two of his friends. You see, they were trapped by the event which had started the cloud. The eruption of Vesuvius. You know the one. It wiped out Pompeii and Herculaneum. Pliny alerts the whole fleet, and they sail off to the rescue. When they arrive across the bay, they find that Pliny's friends are trapped ashore thanks to heavy winds blowing in from offshore. No fear, Pliny orders his boat to shore near his friends, and greets one of them, unable to find the other. They make to leave but discover that they also are unable to do so thanks to those same winds. And then, crazily, Pliny does possibly the weirdest thing ever. In order to reassure his friends and the rest of the party, with a volcano going off not far enough away for anyone's comfort, they all go back into town and have a party. They have baths and a feast and even decide to take naps and basically relax all while waiting for the winds to die down. Which they never do. It isn't until the buildings are starting to collapse around them that they finally decide to leave. By now, a pumice is falling from the sky, and as the others are rushing out of town and trying to get to safety, Pliny the Elder sits down and can't get back up, even with help. And there he dies. And we looked. In all of natural history, there's not one word about not having parties in front of active volcanoes. We hope you enjoyed this episode of GM Word of the Week. If you did, why not tell your friends about it? They'd probably like it too. Why not? We're supported by the generous pledges of our patrons on Patreon. Join us to get early episodes, transcripts, and more. Head over to our website at gmwordoftheweek.com where you'll find information on how to support the show, subscription links, and all of those nifty older episodes we told you about. This episode was written, researched, and produced by me, Brian Casey. Today's music was provided by Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Kumagrano Salis